Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest, USA. Today is the 20th of July, 2021. <clears throat> We've been talking about amino acid metabolism, and so there's no reason to not continue that. And that is exactly what we're going to do. Um, I want to remind you that there's a reaction uh, called glutamate dehydrogenase, which is in most cells, and it will convert ammonium and alpha glutarate to glutamate. This is major enzymatic activity in kidney and liver, even though I said it can occur in other cells. And I want to talk a little bit about how the liver enzyme is allosterically regulated. So in the forward reaction, where ammonium ion and alpha-ketoglutarate move to glutamic acid, uh, as carried out by the dehydrogenase enzyme, that is catalyzed by oxidizing NADPH to NADP. And the reaction is allosterically stimulated by two nucleotides, ATP and GTP. Going the other direction, glutamic acid now generating alpha-ketoglutarate and ammonium. That reaction, of course, will not use an NADP substrate, but it will use an NAD uh, nucleotide, adenine dinucleotide. And that NAD will be in its oxidized form. So the reaction glutamate to ammonium plus alpha-ketoglutarate will reduce NAD to NADH. And that particular reaction when it moves in that direction, is stimulated by ADP and GDP. Now, um, like I often do in authentic biochemistry, I explain a little bit about the, the um, biochemical rationale for that allosteric regulation. So you might ask the question, why would that enzymatic activity from glutamate to ammonium and alpha-KG be stimulated by ADP and GDP? Well, the simplest way of looking at it is that when you do the reaction in this mode, you do two things to increase your bioenergetic equivalency. One is you've made NADH, and NADH, of course, can be cashed out in electron transport chain to make ATP. Uh, and also you've made alpha-ketoglutarate. So because you've made alpha-KG, you're right in the middle of the TCA cycle. So the alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase reaction can then also generate more NADH. And then if you continue the carbon through the rest of the cycle, you will make FADH2 and you'll also make uh, another mole of NADH at that malate dehydrogenase uh, reaction generating oxalacetic acid. So that's why it's stimulated by ADP and GDP because when you have that gamma phosphoryl removed from those two um, high energy nucleotides, uh, that means that ATP and GTP is deficient. And if it's deficient, then uh, the bioenergetic mode will move towards synthesizing more of those two nucleotides. And you also know that GTP is made in the TCA cycle. So again, if you have uh, high levels of GDP, it means that that reaction is also sluggish. And so further driving that alpha-ketoglutarate uh, uh, concentration accumulation so that you can finish the TCA cycle. Likewise, you're looking the other direction and you're actually synthesizing glutamate directly from ammonium and alpha-KG. You can see that first of all, 
when I say that all biosyntheses are reductive. And you can see that NDPH is being used. It's reducing power is being used to synthesize glutamine. Also, you can see the reaction is stimulated by high uh, energetic load. That means high levels of ATP and GTP. That would suggest in the cell that it's not necessary for further synthesis of the bioenergetic equivalents of those two nucleotides, but rather the cell can contrive its own metabolic pathways to synthesize glutamate. In such a case, can be involved in protein synthesis. Glutamate utilization, for example, for neurotransmitters, if this is in that part of the body where that is occurring. And also, so glutamic acid can be involved in other transamination reactions, thus leading to um, further uh, increases in the alteration of amino acid pools that would, of course, support protein synthesis, but also so that you can move those amino acids in and out of other metabolic pathways and also the alpha keto acids that are involved in all those transaminations. So that's a long discussion of the allosteric regulation of glutamate dehydrogenase, but we haven't done that in quite a while, and I wanted to bring it up now because we're going to be talking a fair amount about glutamate. Now, glutamate can also be converted to glutamine. We talked about this quite a bit. That reaction is, of course, glutamine synthetase. When you hear the T in there, the second T, synthetase, that means that ATP is hydrolyzed for the reaction. Uh, this particular one is not uh, a, an outlier. That is indeed the case. ATP is hydrolyzed to ADP and PI, and the ammonium ion is incorporated into the R group of glutamate, making then glutamine. Okay, so you know a lot about the glutamate-glutamine pulse in various cells because you know that glutamine can be used directly as a carbon source for making ATP um, from via glutaminolysis. And this happens in highly uh, bioenergetically starved systems where proteolysis is followed by glutamine utilization for the synthesis ultimately of um, uh, carbon for the TCA cycle. Likewise, and even though you're synthesizing glutamine here, this could be occurring in another tissue to support that pathway in the liver, you see. And the second thing, of course, is that it's another way of storing extra ammonium. And that ammonium then can be transferred around to other amino acids. And also, of course, can ultimately, because it's glutamine, can also be discharged by the urea cycle in the uh, liver. So it's the second reaction I want you to keep in mind. Okay, of course, glutamine is easily converted back to glutamate via the reaction called glutaminase. And that just passes water over that amide bond and you get then free ammonia and glutamate. So it's easy to do the back reaction. So keep in mind the synthesis of aspirogene. Uh, it's a transamination reaction where you take a um Actually, this particular one is not the classical transamination reaction. It's actually a, an, an enzyme that will take aspartate and glutamine and with ATP hydrolysis, move that amino group directly onto aspartate to make asparagine. So this is asparagine synthetase because it takes ATP uh, hydrolysis. And actually it takes a great deal of hydrolysis. You take it from ATP all the way to AMP make PPI, and then you hydrolyze that peptide, uh, or excuse me, that phosphodiester bond to, to 2PI, and that drives this very 
um, endergonic reaction. And so you end up making then from aspartate and glutamine, asparagine and glutamate, and then you're back into other metabolic play. But this allows you to have a net synthesis of asparagine. So of course it's essential for generating that system. Now I wanna focus our attention to a little bit about the um, project at hand. We're talking about how these amino acid pathways are going to be corrupted eventually in the aging process and senescence. So I'm going to direct your attention to a paper published in the Journal of Neurochemistry in 2018. I'll put this, of course, in the show notes. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this paper is all about glutamate. That's why I gave you that brief discussion uh, at the beginning. You know that glutamate is probably one of the most widely distributed amino acids in the body, and there is no exception in the CNS where it's also highly distributed. And we know that in the CNS, it's involved in many molecular mechanisms and neurotransmission, but maybe we didn't know that it's also associated with ischemic brain injury. So when this was first being examined, glutamate was suggested to um, generate detrimental effects through some kind of excitotoxicity, right? Some pathological excitotoxicity. That, what I mean by that is a rapid and massive release of glutamate from neurons can be coupled to um, its inhibited reuptake. And then the result of that would be an energy failure in those neurons. And the energy failure then can spread throughout the cerebral system to make an ischemic response, right? To, to inhibit or to retard uh, oxygen transport because of a lack of energy. So with that theory in mind, the NMDA glutamate receptor um, uh, at, at, uh, was being then analyzed and antagonists were uh, synthesized from the pharmaceutical industry to be potential therapeutics for ischemic brain injuries such as stroke. Now, these drugs, these antagonists to the NMDA receptor failed to show any efficacy in clinical trials. And what's, what was considered, uh, after reasoning this through a little bit, that it's, maybe it's because glutamate extracellular concentrations peak pretty quickly after a stroke onset, usually within a half an hour. And then, of course, after that period, the glutamate would otherwise exert its normal physiological functions, such as the regulation of all the different things the CNS has inclined, like neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, <clears throat> and of course, uh, any repair processes that need to occur, maybe in conjunction with microglia. So the role of glutamate in cerebral ischemia um, hasn't really gone very far because the initial fate, the initial fate of that inquiry using pharmaceuticals didn't work out very well. So, but that doesn't mean that people aren't continuing to look at it because we do know that a lot of uh, excess glutamate does seem to be detrimental. And, it, and we also want to find out if having higher levels of glutamate at certain times in the CNS could actually be uh, beneficial. So people still want to agonize and antagonize the, the glutamate um, axis. So because of all of this, think about the fact that glutamate isn't only a neurotransmitter, but as I just explained to you, 
It's a key component in bioenergetics. <clears throat> in fact, glutamate links, of course, that TCA cycle with two things. One is all the anaplerotic activity so that it can generate alpha keto acids and ultimately drive ATP synthesis because of the uh, reduction of NAD to NADH and FAD to FADH2. Also making a lot of intermediates along the way. Uh, but also, uh, when you were following along there and looking at taking off the KG, reacting it with ammonium, making, um, of course, uh, glutamate and then glutamate for the synthesis of glutamine, all of that could be looked at a totally different perspective. That's actually uh, removing ammonium, which is uh, a toxin. It's a neurotoxin. So functioning glutamate metabolism will affect ammonia detoxification at the same time driving carbon towards bioenergetics or towards the production of neurotransmitters and indeed uh, other useful uh, carbon-based compounds in the cell yeah, all happening in the cns so uh, there's a paper then published in life science uh, a year later 2019 i'll put this in the show notes and let me just uh break this break this whole paper down in some detail. They tell us that there's a lot of evidence to suggest ER stress is an important mechanism for uh, understanding type 2 diabetes. And the people that were publishing this work were actually looking at the N-methyldeaspartate activity associated with apoptotic um, B cell or beta cell death. And of course, when that occurs, when the pancreas beta cells are, de are destroyed, what that does is destroy insulin secretion. And so that's associated with this NMDA receptor. We know that's associated with glutamate. Now, for a long time, people didn't quite understand the mechanism where the NMDA induces beta cell dysfunction. And so people want to start studying it at the level of NMDA receptors. And they came upon the, uh, the, the next card on the deck was ER stress phenomena, endoplasmic particulum associated. So in this paper, they took mouse islet cells. This is going to be, of course, pancreatic system. And that's, in fact, where most pancreatic beta cells are found. And they treated them actually with NMDA, okay, for 24 hours, or they or they treated them for with glucose for a longer period of time, up to three days. After that treatment, you get glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. And that's called GSIS, by the way. And the expression of an <clears throat> ER stress marker then could be measured right after that induction. Now, the expression of ER stress markers, of course, can be measured in the pancreas of diabetic uh, mammals even with, with or without an NMDA receptor inhibitor. So they did both with and without a receptor inhibitor. And here they used memantine. What they found is that NMDA treatment, thus of course being agonizing on the NMDA receptor, caused an increase in expression of ER stress markers. There's several of these, ATF4, CHOP, GRP78, uh, and XBP1S. These are all ER stress markers. And they found these all in primary islets. 
They also looked at the toroso deoxycholic acid, also known as TUDCA. So again, that's toroso-deoxycholic acid. And that's also an inhibitor of ER stress, okay? And it significantly, as it turns out, in attenuated the NMDA-induced beta cell dysfunction. And that included the sequelae of, of inhibiting that dysfunction, included the loss, what would have been a dysfunctional loss of glucostimulated insulin secretion, and of course, a reduction in pancreatic duodenum homeobox factor one, which is PDX1, uh, altering the expression of that gene. Now, that is a transcription factor, which, of course, is intimately regulated with insulin synthesis. That's why they were looking at it. So besides all that, NMDA-induced ER stress will strongly promote pro-inflammatory cytokines. And the ones in the pancreas are IL-1-beta and TNF-alpha. And that's directly actually in beta cells. So when you knock down a protein called CHOP, which I'm going to explain here in a moment, you also attenuate beta cell dysfunction evoked by the NMDA ligand. And more to say than that, they demonstrate that the blockade of the NMDA receptor ameliorates the high glucose-induced ER stress. And they found this both with cells, so in vitro and also in vivo. So this paper basically, to summarize, it confirms that ER stress is actively involved in the activation of NMDAR, that is the receptor for NMDA-related beta cell dysfunction. And then therefore there's an association with glutamic acid, you see. Now, let me talk a little bit about this whole CHOP system. Apoptosis, as you know, is programmed cell death. And what happens there, the body maintains its homeostasis and the entire internal environment. So apoptosis is the initiating cell death process and is controlled by a suite of genes, as you know, that I've talked about in the past. And mainly you can divide those genes into two general canonical pathways for this kind of PCD. You have the endogenous pathway, which is the mitochondrially linked one. Then you have the exogenous pathway, which can be called the DRP or the death receptor pathway. And these apoptotic pathways, of course, are going to be involved in inducing ER stress. It's another component of it. There is a homeostatic imbalance in the ER during that stress. And depending on what kind of parameters you're looking at, it can actually benefit the system. But if the ER protein homeostasis, that is usually glycoprotein metabolism, right? Is it restored to full capacity? A prolonged activation of the what's called the UPR, the unfolded protein response, will initiate apoptotic cell death, and that will it will do that by upregulating a particular protein activity and expression of that activity. It's called C slash EBP homologous protein or CHOP. So CHOP plays a really essential role in the ER stress-induced apoptosis, and it has multifunctional roles in that process, which also include, interestingly, microbial infection. 
So there are upstream and downstream pathways of CHOP and ER stress. All of those are going to be involved in inducing uh, the apatitic pathway. CHOP functions also, as I said, during this microbial infection. So we may get a better handle on how cells function to control um, both infection and to limit the amount of inflammation induced by the immune response. So this is all happening, remember, intracellularly. So the endoplasmic reticulum can associate with apoptosis, and that may be able to limit the amount of an immune-triggered inflammatory response. So the ERS, it turns out, is really important in eukaryotic cells for lots of reasons, and this is one of them. But you know that ER plays a critical role in protein synthesis, and particularly in glycoprotein synthesis, which means all of the um, surface channels and all of the G-protein-coupled receptors, in fact, all the receptors and all the secreted proteins all run through the ER. So the folding and assembly and transportation of all those nation peptides out of the ER is going to be critical to cellular signaling and therefore uh, cellular um, increase when it is necessary to be able to be activated or deactivated in its agency, as well as in its potential to go through cell divisions. So the ER itself has this really powerful homeostatic domain. And it requires a very stable internal ER environment that would be, of course, in the matrix of the ER. And it's the, and the reason that is maintained is because you have to keep the ER viable to maintain all of its functions. So what kinds of things we're talking about here, they're, they're myriad, right? Um, and because of that, there is actually an association of the ER stress response with the DDR as the DNA damage response system. <clears throat> and that's going to be associated with any potential um, endotoxic or exotoxic influence. So we can have, for example, lipotoxicity playing a role in ER stress. I probably not normally thought about, but it does indeed occur. And you get lipotoxicity in diabetes and also generally in obesity. So ER stress usually refers, of course, to that unfolded protein response. And again, that is talking about the recognition of misfolded or unfolded proteins. And when that occurs, this response generates a stress signal that is transmitted from the ER to the nucleus, and that occurs via the endoplasmic reticulum membranous system. So that's going to require the correct molar concentrations of phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylethanolamine, and other uh, glycerol lipids that are associated with the membrane integrity and for the docking and the entire glycoprotein synthesis process involving dolichol pyrophosphate. So these are all very important issues. All right, so I think I've talked enough about CHOP, and that was just one of the proteins that they were looking in this life science paper um, being an ER stress marker because of its association with the uh, folded protein uh, response. Now I want to get back to some metabolism. Remember that we're talking about glutamate metabolism in the CNS. So we can talk about CNS 
mitochondria after an ischemic um, event and post-ischemic recovery. And we can relate all that ischemic event during the aging process. So we are now going to put back together all of this discussion of amino acid metabolism, my somewhat brief encounter with ER stress and the entire system of brain ischemia and the effect of oxygen tensions on ER stress functioning even through membrane lipids, right? And also the expression of a suite of genes that will control via the unfolded protein response, the synthesis and mobility of any glycoproteins that will ultimately make it as uh, channels and as G-protein coupled receptors and receptors in general in the plasma membrane, therefore linking a communication ultimately, yes, to the immune response, directly working with innate immune cells and eventually also lymphocytes. So the pathways, again, we're talking about, uh, just to remind you, there's lactate dehydrogenase, which is a reversible reaction, which will go from lactate to pyruvate, depending on the energy balance. Um, there's also the ammonia alanine dehydrogenase pathway, which will make alanine. Of course, pyruvate can be um, oxidatively decarboxylated to acetyl-CoA. It can also be carboxylated to oxaloacetic acid. And when this is occurring in the mitochondria, the production of acetyl-CoA and the OAA, either anaplerotically through the turning of the TCA cycle or the movement of the glutamate, glutamine, aspartate, oxaloacetic acid shuttling system, that oxaloacetic acid would condense acetyl-CoA via citrate synthase to make citrate. And then moving through cis-aconitate, isocitrate, alpha-ketoglutarate, which you know is in equilibrium with glutamate because of the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction. And also remember the transaminase reaction leading from alpha-KG and glutamate aspartate uh, and OAA, thus replenishing the TCA cycle. And also in certain circumstances allowing for some gluconeogenesis. Okay, now... Beyond that, succinyl-CoA uh, can be synthesized from alpha-ketoglutarate directly, um, and that can involve, of course, just the reactions in the TCA cycle. Succinyl-CoA converted to fumarate, fumarate to succinate, succinate to malate, and onward, right? So you have multiple reactions in the TCA cycle. You have the transamination reactions. You have the dehydrogenases. Um, you have the glutaminase reaction, and then all of that is coupled to control this energy homeostasis and the production of neurotransmitters, which are all going to be essential in the central nervous system. And this is going to be altered, dysregulated, and maybe become dysfunctional um, immediately after ischemic stroke and then the post-ischemic recovery period, all of which can uh, be further deteriorated during the aging process. Now, I know that you're aware of that because we've talked a lot about uh, aging and about the various levels of reactive oxygen, for example, in the um, central nervous system, which can wreak havoc on neurodegenerative properties and pathways. So that's ultimately where we're leading to here. We want to we emphasize this is all about the aging process and that we're, we're key in on that because 
The reason I'm talking about amino acid metabolism is so that we can link it all back together to our discussions of gene expression, how the, the senescence associated secretary phenotype and that aging phenotype, which ultimately will cause um, associative sarcopenia, the, um, the further degeneration of solid organs like the liver, the kidney and the lungs, muscle tissue going down, solid organ tissues no longer functioning correctly. The vasculature also slowing down because of atherosclerosis, further exacerbating the um, increase in um, uh, hypoxia and hypoxia then generating rapid mediated responses to alter gene expression to deal with that. Local hypoxia can also inhibit uh, the utilization of fatty acids for energy equivalents, which can also corrupt entirely the bioenergetics. So I'm going to leave you with all of that, and we're going to get back to a further discussion of um, amino acid metabolism in the central nervous system after ischemic attack in the aging, and then we'll ultimately uh, finish up probably two more lectures in, the, in this scenario, uh, talking about amino acid metabolism, and then we're going to link back up to the main discussion so Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 20th day of July in 2021 saying bye for now.